There you are. We were wondering when you'd show up. Have a seat. Come on. Taking a leisurely stroll, are we? How's that? Just, just looking around. Did you enjoy God's latest gift? What? God's gift. The violence. When I came downstairs in my home and I saw that tree in my living room, it reached out for me like a divine hand. God loves violence. I, I hadn't noticed. <laughs> sure you have. Why else would there be so much of it? It's in us. It's what we are. We wage war and we burn sacrifices and pillage and plunder and tear at the flesh of our brothers. And why? Because God gave us violence to wage in his honor. I thought God gave us moral order. There's no moral order as pure as this storm. There's no moral order at all. There's just this. Can my violence conquer yours? Not violent. Yes, you are. You're as violent as they come. I know this because I'm as violent as they come. With the constraints of society were lifted, and I was all that stood between you and a meal, you would crack my skull with a rock and eat my meaty parts. Wouldn't you? And Carly thinks you're harmless, that you can be controlled, but I know different. You don't know me. Oh, but I no, do. You don't, you don't oh, know I know you. We've known each other for centuries. If I was to sink my teeth into your eye right now, would you be able to stop me before I blinded you? Give it a try. That's the spirit. Think of the people in your life you consider to be the most upright, virtuous people. You admire their adherence to their own moral codes, those well-principled individuals who understand themselves in their times. Who knows, maybe you're one of them. Now, out of that group of individuals, which one is most likely to possess a morality that would transcend any and all of the present era? Which among them would have a set of guiding principles that would make him or her a viable candidate for a thought experiment that would have them hypothetically thrust into a time period that occurred well before the dawn of civilization and forced to adapt and survive? Maybe it's you you're thinking of. Is there a universal set of principles? Wait, let me rephrase that as universal and eternal. Is there a set of universal and eternal principles that would serve as a moral compass for a human being in any era of humans who are biologically indistinguishable from us? What is the origin of morality? Is there something within all, or at least most of us, that guides us? A basic goodness, if you will? What would that goodness be like? Altruistic tendencies, are they within all of us? Something more basic, more primitive, that imbues our psyches with a sense of willingness to do that which is... 
hmm, let's not say good here, to do that, which leaves both the actor and the observer with a positive attitude toward the action. Positive and negative emotions and feelings guide our thinking and behavior. But is it a simple matter of syncing up our collection of them with those of others and selecting out the ones most common to all for use as a basis for creating a societal moral code? To a child belonging to a tribe living in what would seem to us the harshest of environments, one with a meager supply of game to hunt, where deadly battles with other tribes rage continuously in a larger war for limited resources, what would good look like to that child? When hunger, fear, and irritation building up to rage and then exhaustion are essential facts of existence, how does someone building up a worldview, almost completely dominated by a focus on survival, come to have a lasting sense of goodness when positive feelings and emotions are perceived as fleeting as soon as they arrive? We could imagine children and relatively dependent members of the tribe coming to feel something like what we call love for a stronger member. A skilled hunter, an unyielding warrior who acts benevolently toward his familiars and mercilessly toward outsiders. He who extinguishes the lights of those who oppose him and his tribe's continued efforts to live and have more than just enough. He comes to want this. Maybe he never knew it was possible to feel it until after a desperate battle in which he poured out not only all of his rage and desire, but a significant measure of his lifeblood. Maybe then he returned to his people, exhausted yet victorious, and he saw that look in their eyes. Maybe the eyes of his people showed him something he'd never quite put together until then. Adoration. And maybe for that, he adored them, for giving him a reason just beyond mere survival to hunt and fight. We can imagine he loved them and came to feel something different for the outsiders he fought, something like hatred. Not because they sought to push him and his people away from the survival space. It seems likely he would have recognized long before that that kill or be killed was the name of the game. No, maybe what came to inspire this feeling of what we might call hatred was the idea that the others, the aliens, the outsiders, they wished to take away love from him, the love his people gave him and the love he in turn felt for them. But this is all just speculation plausible though it may seem. With this episode, I'd like to begin a four or five part series dedicated to a reading and discussion of the first essay of the book on the genealogy of morals by Friedrich Nietzsche. We'll take a more detailed tour of ideas than we have in most of the previous episodes, a more scholarly approach if you will. But I assure you that this won't become standard procedure for the podcast and future episodes will be structured mostly as they have been up to this point which is to say that they will be brief digests geared toward introducing specific ideas and how certain philosophers thought about them. At this point, I'm working under the assumption that, by the time this podcast has picked up a significant following, if it ever does, there'll be a large enough library of episodes that listeners will be able to pick and choose which ones to listen to according to their interests. For those who have been listening up to this early point in the podcast, I am sincerely grateful. Thank you. Now. Let us begin. On the Genealogy of Morals was originally published in 1887. This is considered by many to be Nietzsche's most important work. In fact, Nietzsche is most famous for his criticisms of Western morality and religion. This work consists of three essays, but for this series we'll be focusing only on the first essay, titled Good and Evil, Good and Bad. 
It's divided up into 17 sections, and in this episode we'll cover sections 1 through 4. Full readings of each section will be given, but have no fear. Not only are the sections relatively short, one to two pages on average, they are very well written. After each, I'll have something to say, though in some cases not much since what Nietzsche has written speaks for itself. So now, if you're ready, let's go. Section 1 Quote, These English psychologists, whom one has also to thank for the only attempts hitherto to arrive at a history of the origin of morality, they themselves are no easy riddle. I confess that, as living riddles, they even possess one essential advantage over their books. They are interesting. These English psychologists, what do they really want? One always discovers them voluntarily or involuntarily at the same task, namely at dragging the partie hontus of our inner world into the foreground and seeking the truly effective and directing agent, that which has been decisive in its evolution, in just that place where the intellectual pride of man would least desire to find it, in the vis inertiae of habit, for example, or in the forgetfulness, or in a blind and chance mechanistic hooking together of ideas, or in something purely passive, automatic, reflexive, molecular, and thoroughly stupid. What is it really that always drives these psychologists in just this direction? Is it a secret, malicious, vulgar, perhaps self-deceiving instinct for belittling man? Or possibly a pessimistic suspicion, the mistrustfulness of disappointed idealists grown spiteful and gloomy? Or a petty subterranean hostility and rancor towards Christianity and Plato that has perhaps not even crossed the threshold of consciousness? Or even a lascivious taste for the grotesque, the painfully paradoxical, the questionable and absurd in existence. Or finally something of each of them, a little vulgarity, a little gloominess, a little anti-Christianity, a little itching and need for spice. But I am told they are simply old, cold and tedious frogs, creeping around men and into men as if in their own proper element, that is, in a swamp. I rebel at that idea. More, I do not believe it. And if one may be allowed to hope where one does not know, then I hope from my heart they may be the reverse of this, that these investigators and microscopists of the soul may be fundamentally brave, proud, and magnanimous in animals, who know how to keep their hearts as well as their sufferings in bounds, and have trained themselves to sacrifice all desirability to truth, every truth, even plain, harsh, ugly, repellent, unchristian, immoral truth, for such truths do exist. Unquote. Here, Nietzsche talks about the curious nature of the psychological investigations of people he referred to as English psychologists. In the introduction to On the Genealogy of Morals, he mentions the primary book he focused on in developing his criticisms, a book called The Origin of Moral Sensations by Dr. Paul Rie, who it turns out was German, not English, and a friend of Nietzsche's. At this early point in the book, we have to assume that Nietzsche had some larger group of people in mind, these so-called English psychologists, whose ideas he was not well disposed to. However, even though he doesn't agree with their conclusions, he wants to believe criticisms of their motivations are unjust. It seems he wants to believe that they were fearless in their attempts to go beyond the normal biases created by human desire to get at certain ugly, brutal truths, ones which Nietzsche wanted to get at himself. Section 2 Quote all respect, then, for the good spirits that may rule in these historians of morality. But it is, 
unhappily, certain that the historical spirit itself is lacking in them, that precisely all the good spirits of history itself have left them in the lurch. As is the hallowed custom with philosophers, the thinking of all of them is by nature unhistorical. There is no doubt about that. The way they have bungled their moral genealogy comes to light at the very beginning, where the task is to investigate the origin of the concept and judgment, good. Originally, so they decree, one approved unegoistic actions and called them good from the point of view of those to whom they were done, that is to say, those to whom they were useful. One later forgot how this approval originated and, simply because unegoistic actions were always habitually praised as good, one also felt them to be good, as if they were something good in themselves. One sees straight away that this primary derivation already contains all the typical traits of the idiosyncrasy of the English psychologists. We have utility, forgetting, habit, and finally, error, all as the basis of an evaluation of which the higher man has hitherto been proud as though it were a kind of prerogative of man as such. This pride has to be humbled, this evaluation disvalued. Has that end been achieved? Now, it is plain to me, first of all, that in this theory the source of the concept good has been sought and established in the wrong place. The judgment good did not originate with those to whom goodness was shown. Rather, it was the good themselves, that is to say, the noble, powerful, high-stationed, and high-minded who felt and established themselves and their actions as good, that is, of the first rank, in contradistinction to all the low, low-minded, common, and plebeian. It was out of this pathos of distance that they first seized the right to create values and coin names for the values. What had they to do with utility? The viewpoint of utility is as remote and inappropriate as it possibly could be in face of such a burning eruption of the highest rank ordering, rank-defining value judgments. For here feeling has attained the antithesis of that low degree of warmth which any calculating prudence, any calculus of utility, presupposes. And not for once only not for an exceptional hour, but for good. The pathos of nobility and distance, as aforesaid, the protracted and domineering fundamental total feeling on the part of a higher ruling order in relation to a lower order, to a below, that is, the origin of the antithesis, good and bad. The lordly right of giving names extends so far that one should allow oneself to conceive the origin of language itself as an expression of power on the part of the rulers. They say this is this, and this. They seal everything and event with the sound, as it were, take possession of it. It follows from this origin that the word good was definitely not linked from the first and by necessity to unegoistic actions, as the superstition of these genealogists of morality would have it. Rather, it was only when aristocratic value judgments declined that the whole antithesis, egoistic, unegoistic, obtruded itself more and more on the human conscience. It is, to speak in my own language, the herd instinct that through this antithesis at last gets its word, and its words, in. And even then it was a long time before that instinct attained such dominion that moral evaluation was actually stuck and halted at this antithesis. As, for example, is the case in contemporary Europe, the prejudice that takes moral, unegoistic, disinteresse as concepts of equivalent value already rules today with the force of a fixed idea, and brain sickness. Unquote. In this section, Nietzsche addresses the origin of the concept of good. 
He criticizes the notion put forth by those English psychologists, here he calls them historians of morality and genealogists of morality. According to the so-called English psychologists, originally, selfless actions toward others were called good from the point of view of those who were the beneficiaries of such altruistic behavior, which Nietzsche refers to as unegoistic behavior. Apparently, what was good about such behavior was that it was useful to those who were on the receiving end of it. At some point, this became a custom and people forgot about how the approval of such behavior came about, and rather than consider the usefulness of these beneficial actions, they came to think of selfless actions as intrinsically good, which made selflessness into a virtue and worthy of being written into a culture's moral code. Nietzsche thinks that such a conclusion on the part of the English psychologists was due to a baked-in flaw in their evaluation of human traits, this flaw being the tendency to think of humans as basically noble creatures. Nietzsche says that notion is false. He says the judgment of good didn't come from those who were shown goodness, but from those who showed it. According to him, they were the truly noble ones. These high-minded individuals who were capable of such refined behavior showed to the low-ranking, low-minded folk what it was to be good. It was the noble, aristocratic soul who ranked higher in the social order and who had the power to create values and give them names, maybe more so out of vanity than of utility, maybe not. They were the ones who wrote the rules of societies, and notions of good that ended up as a part of the social order necessarily had to come from them, as the lower-ranking folks had no power to influence changes made in the social order. They just went along with the program. It was only when, as Nietzsche puts it, aristocratic value judgments declined that the selflessness versus selfishness, or more simply good versus bad, concept started to take hold. Not having read Paoli's book The Origin of Moral Sensations, nor having any information on these so-called English psychologists, we'd like to have a little something more to go on concerning what it is that Nietzsche is disagreeing with. Christopher Janoway, author of a book called Beyond Selflessness, Reading Nietzsche's Genealogy, gives some background on the matter. Quote, this chapter compares central themes of the genealogy with their treatment in Lee's Origin of the Moral Sensations, which Nietzsche highlights in the preface as the main book he is disagreeing with. Lee accounts for the origin of the concepts good and bad in terms of utility, evolution, and conditioning. His central term is the unegoistic. Communities who became conditioned to have positive feelings toward the unegoistic were selected for survival. It is argued that Lee's theory is the one criticized in Genealogy 1 under the heading of English Psychologists. In reply, Nietzsche distinguishes bad from evil and examines power relations rather than a homogenous community. Unquote. This quote was taken from the author Janoway's webpage. I haven't read his book. Considering the preceding quote, it seems Nietzsche's point is a strong one and that, indeed, developing a theory of the origin of morals by considering idealized, homogenous communities seems misguided, given that history shows us that more often than not, even in very basic societies, power structures emerge quickly. The notion of those in need of charity, meaning those having less power, the notion of them being the source of any societal values is counterintuitive. Moving on to section 3. Quote, in the second place, however, quite apart from the historical untenability of this hypothesis regarding the origin of the value judgment good, it suffers from an inherent psychological absurdity. The utility of the unegoistic action is supposed to be the source of the approval accorded it, 
and this source is supposed to have been forgotten. But how is this forgetting possible? Has the utility of such actions come to an end at some time or other? The opposite is the case. This utility has rather been an everyday experience at all times, therefore something that has been underlined again and again. Consequently, instead of fading from consciousness, instead of becoming easily forgotten, it must have been impressed on the consciousness more and more clearly. How much more reasonable is that opposing theory? It is not for that reason more true, which Herbert Spencer, for example, espoused, that the concept good is essentially identical with the concept useful, practical, so that in the judgments good and bad, mankind is summed up and sanctioned precisely its unforgotten and unforgettable experiences regarding what is useful practical and what is harmful impractical. According to this theory, that which has always proved itself useful is good. Therefore, it may claim to be valuable in the highest degree, valuable in itself. This road to an explanation is, as aforesaid, also a wrong one, but at least the explanation is in itself reasonable and psychologically tenable. Unquote. This short section mostly speaks for itself, and Nietzsche makes his point clearly. He points out that the notion of going from the utility goodness of an action to just the goodness of it by way of forgetting the utility part makes no sense because the utility of such altruistic actions is unforgettable. In a hypothetical example, consider the case of a society where those with the most power were responsible for maintaining, and when possible, strengthening their communities. They might come to use intimidation to regulate human behavior, which could lead to resentment. Even if they were to see some utility in focusing more on reward than punishment to motivate the people below them to do whatever it was they needed them to do, it would be they, the so-called noblemen and aristocrats, who decided that such behavior would lead to more of a win-win situation, and that that would be good. In other words, they would see the utility in it, but they could easily decree that doing so is good because it is done out of love, not utility. The lower-ranking beneficiaries of the policy change would accept the decree and openly call it good as it came from on high, no matter how clever they were in being able to see the utility in such a policy change. The notion that they would go around and secretly discuss their cynical feelings, justified as they may be, with each other, agree as a group that the utility itself was what was good, and then eventually forget the utility of it and come to call such a benevolent action good in and of itself, does seem absurd. It seems more likely that what would be forgotten is that originally such benevolent actions were called good because they came from on high, and that the obvious utility of them would remain. And since the word good, to describe such actions, was already in common use, people would come to associate the utility of such behavior with the notion of good. Section 4 Quote, The signpost to the right road was for me the question, what was the real etymological significance of the designations for good coined in the various languages? I found they all led back to the same conceptual transformation, that everywhere, noble, aristocratic, in the social sense, is the basic concept from which good, in the sense of with aristocratic soul, noble, with a soul of higher order, with a privileged soul, necessarily developed, a development which always runs parallel with that other in which common, plebeian, low, are finally transformed into the concept bad. The most convincing example of the latter is the German word schlecht, bad, itself, which is identical with schlicht, plain, simple. Compare schlechtweg, plainly, schlechterdings, simply, and originally designated the plain, the common man, as yet with no inculpatory implication and simply in contradistinction to the nobility. 
about the time of the Thirty Years' War, late enough, therefore, this meaning changed into the one now customary. With regard to a moral genealogy, this seems to me a fundamental insight, that it has been arrived at so late is the fault of the retarding influence exercised by the democratic prejudice in the modern world toward all questions of origin. And this is so even in the apparently quite objective domain of natural science and physiology, as I shall merely hint here. But what mischief this prejudice is capable of doing, especially to morality and history, once it has been unbridled to the point of hatred is shown by the notorious case of Buckle. Here, the plebeianism of the modern spirit, which is of English origin, erupted once again on its native soil, as violently as a mud volcano, and with that salty, noisy, vulgar eloquence with which all volcanoes have spoken hitherto. Unquote. Here, Nietzsche gives us a hint of what is to come in this essay, the inversion of values where the weak and oppressed form a new morality, one where the concepts of good and bad, as they were called in ancient times, transform into what we call today good and evil. The new morality would come to shape the social and political structure of the Western world and give us a civilization filled with democratic societies where egalitarian thinking drives human progress. Nietzsche will say, however, that we've smuggled in from the past something insidious in our pedagogy of morality, something that has driven us to use oppression to stamp out oppression. Yes, no one loves to point out hypocrisy more than Nietzsche, and he may seem somewhat of a blowhard at times, but I think you'll find what he has to say about Western morality quite thought-provoking. Next time, we'll start from section 5. There'll be some fairly uncomfortable reading which will challenge us to remain objective while separating Nietzsche's ideas from his personality. Until then, I hope you'll spend some time developing your own ideas about morality and its origins. Thank you for listening. May you have a peaceful and enjoyable New Year's holiday.